Movies about serial killers used to be so rare, you could count them on one hand. M, The Leopard Man, The Spiral Staircase, Psycho and Peeping Tom. But for various reasons, not least of which was the dismantlement of Hollywood's Hayes Code in the mid-1960s, the subgenre began to soak into our screens. The Boston Strangler, The Detective, The Honeymoon Killers, Ten Willington Place, Frenzy, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills of Eyes, Halloween and Cruising. What initially appeared to be an aberration is now a ubiquity. Best-selling novels, blockbuster franchises and TV shows all prowl the same familiar track. So much so you wonder what the Netflix show Mindhunter could possibly have to offer that is different, new and even interesting. Mindhunter marks the fourth time David Fincher has investigated serial killers. He has, of course, tackled other subjects. His pop videos and commercials, The Social Network and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, all show interests beyond the violent phenomenon. But given how often Fincher has revisited crime scenes, there is a sense that, like those criminals, all he is doing is perfecting his style. A style so singular you can instantly recognise his work from a single frame. His painter's palette is practically limited to two colours, teal and coral. His low lighting scheme delicately graded so we can see shadows within shadows. His impeccably composed images framed in the widescreen format by a surprising variety of lenses, the composite of which you can trace to some of Fincher's favourite films. Rear Window, Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Strangelove, The Graduate, The Godfather Part Two, Chinatown, Jaws, Taxi Driver, All the President's Men, Alien and Mad Max 2. Add to that his seamless editing, and I promise, in all of Fincher's work, you will never once see a bad shot or a sloppy cut. Then there is the dialogue. Fincher does not write his own scripts, but it is striking the similar ways his actors speak. He prefers them to deliver the lines in swiftly rhythmed yet calm tones. As an aggregate, all those decisions imprint such a detailed Bible for Mindhunter that the other directors in the series, Asif Kapadia, Tobias Lindholm, Andrew Douglas, Andrew Dominic and Carl Franklin, slip imperceptibly into his stream. Take the names off the credits. Could you honestly tell which episodes Fincher did not direct? Okay. If you're going to go in, you need to go in stone goddamn cold, take them by surprise, get the fuck out as quick as possible. Good advice. Straight in there. Don't phone. Don't give him a chance to ask around. I'm a buddy of Jim Connor's. Jim Connor reached out. You bet. He sends his regards. I stopped by the jury room for a drink. The guys all say blah, blah, blah. Can I call you Big Ed? I wouldn't mention the killings. You're not there because he's a necrophile degenerate. You're there because he's fascinating. So much for Fincher's technique. What about his content? Fincher's file on serial killers began with seven. Despite adopting the medieval notion of deadly sins as his template, he made sure the thriller was decidedly lacking in violence. Instead, he soaked it in the dread of violence. A landmark for the subgenre, as well as one of the great American films of the last 30 years, Fincher returned to the subject with Zodiac, another classic, and for me, even better, which this time covered the real-life but still unsolved murders of who knows how many victims. However, instead of giving his audience another sweat-stained experience, this time Fincher chose to detail how the homicidal chaos impacted on the investigators. With it, he explored the collaterally damaged. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was a letdown, mainly because, unlike the previous pictures, it didn't really break new ground for the subgenre. 
As for Mindhunter, it covers some cases that are more than half a century old. 40 years ago, your FBI was founded hunting down John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, criminals who thumbed their noses at society but were basically in it for personal gain. Now, we have extreme violence between strangers. Where do we go when motive becomes elusive? Mindhunter is based on the book written by retired FBI agent John Douglas and investigative author Mark Olshaker. It begins over 40 years ago in 1977, which is from today roughly equidistant to the time the FBI began interviewing serial killers back to the age when they were tracking down those machine gun toting outlaws, which might suggest that the methods practiced by the Behavioral Science Unit in Mindhunter are as antiquated now as when back in the 1930s J. Edgar Hoover claimed that there was no such thing as organised crime in the United States. However, this is where I think Mindhunter really breaks new ground. More than just chronicling the early days of the BSU, how they did their research, collated their information, formulated the vocabulary to define the behaviour and crimes of the murderers, the show's creator Joe Penhull uses all that material and his own invention to throw everything into a much wider relief. Yes, it covers the history, but for starters, it also critiques those storytellers who have misrepresented such horrors. I'm sorry, Ed. Do you mean that violence in the movies drove you to kill those women? No. My point is, in reality, it doesn't work the way you expect. When you stab somebody, they're supposed to fall dead. They go, oh, fall dead, right? Right. In reality, when you stab somebody, they lose blood pressure and they leak to death very slowly. So I was reluctant. I didn't enjoy it. All too often, fiction presents serial killers as charismatic personalities, stages the murders in salacious fashions, and chessboards the plots so implausible premises have naive victims making foolish choices, all so we can be shocked by the twist ending, or excited by the extended play. The Evil Within, the disturbing new experience from the father of survival horror, Shinji Mikami, takes us into the twisted world of Detective Sebastian Castellanos as he unravels the horrific details of who or what is terrorizing Crimson City. While Mindhunter reconstructs interviews with several of America's most notorious real-life serial killers, its principal leads are fictions. Agents Holden Ford and Bill Tench played by Jonathan Grofe and Holt McElhaney, and Dr. Wendy Carr, played by Anne Torv, are based respectively on John Douglas, Robert Ressler, and Professor Anne Burgess. Here is Burgess being interviewed last year by Brian Griffin at the Boston College Connell School of Nursing, explaining how her research helped guide investigations. We broke down the murder, because people hear, it's a murder. No, it's, you've got the before the murder, what's going on with him, and then you had the actual act itself, and then you had the aftermath, and that all put together, when you had the serial aspect, played into what we call the motivational model of, of the serial. What is it that made them over and over have to kill? Well, that gets into the type of killer. So that, that was a real observation of how you had the lust killer, where you have actually a, you take aggression and you take the sexuality and it fuses together and into the psychological expression of sadism. That's really what, what this was all about. It is perhaps an extremely acute example of how male-dominated our society is, that while we justifiably venerate men who do noble deeds, we also afford special places for men who are mass murderers, especially if the victims are women. 
In almost every case, her identity is discarded, while the perpetrator is assigned the status of icon. Not only are his crimes examined and poured over in near delight, but his life prior to that is then publicised with such detail that he is all but painted as a victim of fate. Born into a highly dysfunctional home with an absent father and a domineering mother, he had no chance to survive intact. Here is Fincher in 2017 on The Charlie Rose Show, promoting season one of Mindhunter. This is not to, you know, overstate how much empathy or, or sympathy we should have for them. It's just simply a fact. And, and I really thought it was time to sort of take that back and, and make it really... The reason that we are fascinated with them is because we're nothing like them. Yet we've made a whole of infamy, each murderer more notorious than the next, while the real victims, so often young women, are abused all over again, their memories ignored and their names forgotten. In May 1972, Marianne Pesha and Anita Lucessa were stabbed and strangled in Berkeley, California. They were both 18-year-old college students. In January 1969, Linda Slauson was strangled in Salem, Oregon. She was a 19-year-old door-to-door encyclopedia saleswoman. In July 1966, Gloria Davy, Patricia Matuzek, Nina Jo Schmale, Pamela Wilkening, Susanna Farris, Mary Ann Jordan, Merletta Gargolo and Valentina Pazion were all student nurses on the south side of Chicago when they were murdered in their dormitory on the very same night. Please. My daughter is Catherine. Boy, that's smart. Release her unharmed. Jesus, that's really smart. Anywhere she keeps repeating the name. And I promise she you... She sees Catherine as a person and not just an object. It's harder to tear her up. Please. Release my little girl. So how does Mindhunter treat its female characters? First, we meet Debbie Mitford, played by Hannah Gross. A sociology graduate, she is also Ford's girlfriend. While their relationship lasts, she uses her studies to test his understanding of his field of work. Sometimes he comes up short, which means that for a while, Mitford is less his girlfriend than she is his mentor. Next, we meet Dr. Carr, who is brought in from outside the bureau to help with the BSU. And as portrayed by Torv, she is not just an authority within her field, but also extremely composed and forthright with her colleagues. But she is also somewhat guarded, concealing from them her sexual orientation. At the time, the FBI regarded anything outside of heterosexuality as deviant. Sakara's decision is professional, just as much as it is personal. That delineation finds an echo with Agent Tench, who, in season two, has to contend with and decides to keep from everyone in the office, besides Dr. Carr, that his adopted son participated in the murder of a two-year-old boy. For some, that development was far-fetched. I mean, right under the nose of a BSU agent. But for me, I sense that is part of yet another theme that the show will develop in the coming seasons. That is, how a killer is formed. Played by Zachary Scott Ross, six-year-old Brian was adopted at 18 months and although he is being raised in a stable and loving home, he barely, if ever, speaks. His mother, Nancy, played by Stacey Roca, has always been concerned about his silence and wonders where he was before he was adopted. What happened to him that has caused him to be so withdrawn? Is a killer born or is a killer formed? Dr. James Fallon is a neuroscientist from the Irving School of Medicine in the University of California. And here he is at TED Talks in 2009. We've been looking at the interaction of genes and brain damage and the interaction with environment and exactly how that machine works. 
The key thing is that the major violence genes is called the MAOA gene. And there's a variant of this gene that is in the normal population. Some of you have this. Theoretically, what this means is that in order to express this gene in a violent way, very early on, before your puberty, you have to be involved in something that's really traumatic, really seeing violence or being involved in it in 3D. Curiously, Fallon has taken several CAT scans which reveal neurological patterns in his brain somewhat similar to those found in serial killers. So how does he account for his living a healthy, creative and productive life as opposed to exhibiting dangerous, destructive and fatal behaviour? It would appear then that a serial killer is the product of a perfect storm. A neurological anomaly in the brain, damage to the orbital cortex just above the eyes and a childhood exposed to severe violence. But what is even more interesting is not how the show treats its characters, but how the characters treat one another. Take for instance episode 5 in season 2, when the unit's new chief Ted Gunn, played by Michael Cerverus, hosts a party to which all the three principals are invited. No sooner is Carr in the front door than she is phoned over by a male guest, but not before Gunn himself takes the liberty of unfastening the top button of Carr's blouse. Without rebuking him, she rebuttons her blouse, but then has to fend off Warren played by Robert Farrier. What are we doing here? Well, every job has its politics. I mean, is we can be somewhere else together. Oh. I'd like to be alone with you. Uh, Warren, no, thank you. We could be really enjoying ourselves. Gradually, the series has been broadening its canvas to take the serial killer out of the subgenre and into the realm of sociology. Not just the profile of the killer and the victims, how their familial and economic situations may have fed into the violence, but also seemingly smaller but no less telling behaviours. Warren and Gunn, for example. However, given the amount of serial killers rampaging in America at the time, Mindhunter could have chosen any number of them. So it is telling that in episode 3 of season 2, Ford undertakes what he assumes to be just another road trip interview for the BSU. After he's done, he checks into his hotel. In the, uh key card. You know, we should, um, we've been having some troubles with these machines. It's been up and down all day. Everything's broken before it's fixed, right? Always. I should probably go up with you. Just to check this way you don't have to come all the way back down. That's okay, I don't. To Ford's surprise and delight, Tanya, played by Sierra McLean, invites him out to dinner. But when they get to the restaurant, Tanya introduces him to three women. All mothers of murdered children. At the funeral, a whole lot of people showed up even the mayor. But nobody asked how the body of a nine-year-old boy gets stuffed in a maintenance trap, a hole in the concrete of an abandoned school the way Yusuf's had. There are no answers to questions you can't even conceive. We don't come here on Wednesdays for the food, Agent Ford. We waited, we prayed, but we are done. Our children are dying. And someone must do something about it. I'd like to help. Among its many virtues, Mindhunter is brilliantly cast. While Grove is a balancing act of Boy Scout enthusiasm and uncanny instincts, McElhaney is a wonderful contradiction, world-weary but still hopeful. Torv is the paradox who wants to uncover the masks but needs to shield part of her own identity. 
However, in the second season, there are two standouts. Sierra McLean has a small but crucial role. It is she who brings forward to meet the mothers of the murdered children. One of them is Camille Bell, the real-life figure who lost her son Yusuf. She is played by June Carroll, an absolute powerhouse whose suffering and indignation combine to unite a community. It was Bell who organised the Committee to Stop Children's Murders. Suddenly, Mindhunter is no longer profiling killers. It is profiling law enforcement, economic deprivation, social neglect, judicial indifference, prejudice, bigotry, and institutionalised racism, the deepest, most pathological divisions in America's history. Netflix has commissioned three more seasons, which will likely bring Mindhunter up to the early 1990s. I can't wait to see where it takes us because I'm sure it'll break new ground.